All right, we're in John 18. And the last couple of weeks that we've been working through this chapter, uh, as I've suggested, there are a couple of the large, maybe the greatest themes, in my opinion, of the New Testament. Uh, that's related to the fact about Jesus's kingship and his kingdom, which is the most, uh, t- from a statistical standpoint, uh, mentioned topic or idea uh, in the entire Gospels. 120 times uh, re- referenced in the Gospels. And as we've worked through this, I'm, I'm guessing or considering that there might be uh, at least some questions. And so I've, I've used this before. And so if you, if you care to, uh, you can go uh, just Google Socrative student. If you, if you care to, you don't have to. Uh, Socrative student. And then when you get there, it just says a room number. And the room is 50168. Uh, I've disabled all the names, so there's no way to know, uh, you know, any, what, what anybody who's who's doing this. Uh, I, 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 uh, a few of the comments I generally track down because I know who the smart alecks are in here, but uh, you know, mostly leave it alone. Uh, but if, if you have a question, because there are several things here we've we've worked through that could raise that, and I'll try to work my way through this. I often get so busy I don't uh, do all that, but we'll we'll try to work at that. Because uh, this particular section here is, again, the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry. Uh, he is refer- re- re- revealing and referring to things that I would suggest to you are critical, essential matters uh, as it relates to his leaving this earth and his ministry to assume uh, his place back in heaven. Uh, and uh, part of this section here is uh, loaded up with a couple of uh, just uh, huge ideas, in, in my opinion. And so I want to look at that because in this uh, particular subject matter that we're doing, I, I hope, is that, you have that enough? Everybody got that that wants it? You can just jot it down. In the subject matter, I've suggested that in this meeting between uh, Jesus and the authorities of the religious authorities that he's already dealt with and basically outed them because they've broken every law and every rule uh, in Judaism with this trial that they've done. Uh, In addition to that, he is now confronting, uh, if you will, uh, the, the political powers. Uh, you know, these two great powers uh, in the world, uh, some might even suggest that they're the same today, that, that the two greatest powers in the world are either the religious and uh, uh, political power matters or, uh, the, or the political or the religious uh, powers uh, that be. And there's lots of discussion these days about how they've interacted or interfaced. And so Jesus here confronts them both. Uh, in a pretty uh, marvelous way. And my topic here that I've been working on is this, or sorry, Jesus in command of the situation. Jesus in command. And I, again, I don't want to bore you, but remember there are lots of things in this garden scene and others that are not present that are in all the other gospels. John is up to something here. There's no agony. At the, uh, there's no agony. There's no asking for the cup to pass. Uh, there, there's no, uh, Father, take this cup away from me. Uh, there's a complete sense in which Jesus uh, is in full command of the situation. And so we, we, we're looking at that under, under that topic. Now, now the idea of being in command, I, I always try to think, how can I illustrate that or, or do this? Uh, how many of you believe that the Cleveland Cavaliers are coached by Coach Lou? How many of y'all believe that LeBron James is the real coach of the team, <laughs> right? Right? I, I, I've watched those guys. It's, it's been kind of interesting 
uh, over the years to watch uh, any team that LeBron is on. Uh, he's not been or the coach has not really been that much in control. In fact, in the 2015 playoffs in a game with the Chicago Bulls and the Cavs, with one point down and one second left, Coach David Blatt, who was fired, <laughs> uh, called up a play and wrote it up or drew it up for the team for the final seconds of that. And LeBron James scratched it off and told the reporters, I just told Coach, give me the ball. We're going to win this by me doing it or not. Wow. I think everybody knew by that time that David Blatt was not in command, right? I think they all knew that LeBron James had taken this team over and that he was, that, that was no longer in command or control of those players. In a similar way, uh, as we look at this passage, I want to suggest to you that even though the religious leaders assumed they were in control and thought they had the control, and though the religious or uh, political leaders thought of that, there was not really, if you will, that matter in command of this situation. So we have Jesus in command of the situation. What do we have here? Is Jesus initiating? <clears throat> Jesus' determination? Jesus' confrontation? And Jesus' essential affirmation? That's where we are. And we're, we're, I'm, I'm just trying to keep us up here so we kind of know again where we are. Jesus begins with an incredible affirmation, and that is, <clears throat> who is he? Who did he say he was? <clears throat> and who did Pilate say he was? A king, right? <clears throat> Jesus declares from the very beginning that he's a king, that he's the one <clears throat> who's in authority. He's the one <clears throat> in, uh, who is in authority, not the religious leaders or, um, <clears throat> if you will, uh, the, the uh, political leaders. Uh, this kingdom that he's come to set up. Now notice there in 18, if you will, when that question, Pilate says, are you a king? And Jesus said, did you ask this on your own or is, 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 did somebody tell you this? And we discussed that last week. And Jesus said to him, you've correctly said, verse 37, I am a king. And I just, I want to I settle down here for a little bit longer because I want to discuss a little more in detail the, the response that that should elicit uh, from us, that he's a king, that he's in control. I, look over in 19, we're going to move forward here just a little bit today. Look over in 19 in this uh, discussion when Pilate uh, finds out who he is. Uh, there's this uh, discussion in verse 8 of chapter 19. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was not, he was even more afraid that G Jesus had made himself king. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, where are you from? Now, isn't that interesting? Where are you from? And Jesus gave him no answer. You know, you can read this and you can ask questions. It doesn't mean you, you, you affirm all. Let me just say this. Is he saying, where are you from in the sense of where's your location? He did find out he's from Galilee. Or had Jesus acted in such a way? He's saying, where are you from? You're, you're not acting the way every other criminal I've ever been around or has ever come before me has acted. You're, you're, you're not acting. Where are you from, man? What is it about this control or this sense of being in command when he says, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you do not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Here again is this conversation with Jesus. 
And Jesus answered, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. You know, here, here again, Jesus is what? In command. Look, I, I, look don't, 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 don't get too excited about yourself, Pilate. You have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you from heaven. Now, th this is this idea of his kingship, his, his ability or his power. I wonder when he says here, he said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. That, that obviously means heaven. The Jewish mind, above or heaven. Whenever we see in John 3, when it says you have to be born again, it literally is you have to be born from above. The idea of where, where God is. That God is in charge here. That Jesus is in command here. That unless God had given authority here for him to do this, it wouldn't be done. In addition to that, I think it could mean this in this kingship that Jesus has. He's just simply saying this too, or not simply, but asserting. Listen, he, he well, he, he knows everything, so he knew this song would be written one day. He could have called. Y'all remember this, huh? To destroy the world and... Set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone, which is not exactly true. We'll argue about that later. <clears throat> For you and me. You know, Jesus had turned the authority over to this guy to say, I'll let you do this to me. But I'm the king of the universe. I'm the king of kings. You have no authority over me if it had not been given to you from above. Now, this idea, again, is authority and power. Now, where I want to move into is this idea of this idea of who he affirms himself to be. Because I think there's some confusion on our response. There's confusion on, on, on Pilate's response, obviously. There's some confusion on Pilate's response. <laughs> who are you? What, you know, don't you know I can take you or crucify you? And Jesus said, no, no, you don't have authority over me. What, what comfort, what, what confidence that Jesus had is this idea of his, who he is. And I started this last week, but I want to, I just, I, I need to unpack this just a little more for my own uh, well-being or thought here. This idea of who Jesus is as king. Uh, we know the scriptures teach that Jesus is savior. We know the scriptures teach that Jesus is Lord. But in this particular place and throughout the New Testament, there really is this understanding of Jesus as king. So what would our response be to a king? It's, it, it, I, I told you about a book last week I hope you thought about reading, but it's this idea of that because of Jesus' kingship, that faith may not, well, this is going to be a terrible thing to say here, but the Greek word faith, pistis, can often be translated faithfulness faithfulness, not just faith or just believe in an idea, not just faith as a concept, but pistis, pistuo, pistumain is the idea of faith or faithfulness is part of that. And it seems to me that if that is part of that idea, that we might want to look at our response. What, what is the response to the king? We, we see pilots, what's ours? Now I've suggested to you before that in our culture nowadays that the word faith sometimes just means believing in some idea or something. I've had students write to me on lots of occasions, and maybe this comes out of a college setting, 
But I've had lots of students write me and say, I didn't know believing in Jesus or having faith in Jesus meant that I would follow him or obey him. I just thought it meant I would believe in him. I, I don't even know what that means, honestly, except James 2.19 says that the demons believe and shudder. So there is this notion that faith can just be a sort of a intellectual comprehension of something or, or an intellectual agreement. But if, if that idea is, it seems to me that even our culture is kind of messing this up. I, I, if you remember, um, oh, this thing. If you, uh, I'm gonna talk to you here in a minute about the 80s. I, I always laugh with a couple of my friends that uh, if you remember the 60s, you weren't there. Okay, remember what Abby Hoffman said? But some of us <clears throat> remember the 80s, and uh, I don't know if this brings back any memories or flashbacks. You may not want to admit that you know who I'm talking about here, but this is the artist known as George Michael. Used to be in Wham. I told Becky the other day I was listening to some of this old music, and I said, this really takes me back. And, and, and I think, you know, she kind of looks at me a little worried like, are you thinking about a little girlfriend? <laughs> are you? She, I mean, she looked kind of a little like, what do you mean, takes me back? I said, well, this music takes me back <clears throat> to whenever I was working at United Parcel Service and going to work at 2.30 in the morning and turn on the radio and hear this guy <laughs> while I'm getting a Twinkie and a Coke swallowed down for in the 10 minutes I have to get to work at 2.30. Two I, I don't know if you remember. Do you remember what his first album name was? Huh? Faith. Here it is. <clears throat> Faith. Do you know that? One of his most iconic songs is named Faith. Listen to some of the lyrics here. <clears throat> it's, uh, I guess it would be nice if I, could know, uh, if I could know you, but I've got to think twice before I give my heart away. And I know all the games you play, but because I play them too. Now, sometime off of that emotion, time to pick my heart up off the floor. Oh, what love comes down without devotion. Well, well it takes a strong man, baby, but I'll, I'm showing you the door because I got to have, sing it, <laughs> faith, faith, faith. I got to have faith, faith, faith. Think about that. Here's a secular artist. Let me get, go forward there. Here's a secular artist that says, Faith is critical to my relationship with this girl or girlfriend like that. That's amazing to me. And I think that the word faith in some ways has been almost overtaken to where this is cliff, you, you know, thoughts and opinions of this teacher, not necessarily thoughts and opinions across the community church, it's elders, our leadership. I think sometimes the word faith has been so taken over in culture and other things, it almost doesn't mean anything. Everybody uses it. Faith. I want to suggest, and this idea, if Jesus really is king, I told you last week, I suggested a new word. Do you remember what it is? Huh? Allegiance. Allegiance. Loyalty, if you will. That's what the word pistis often means. Faith or faithfulness. You know, uh, where you see this is, uh, in, in Galatians chapter 2.20, there are certain translations will pick up on this. For I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith 
in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's some scholars that would suggest that that word faith there again should be translated like this. And the life I now live, I live by the faithfulness of the son of God. That's the idea of loyalty. The faithfulness. I live by the faithfulness of the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a different nuance to that word. This idea of faith as faithfulness, allegiance, loyalty brings it into a little more, if you will, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an active kind of way. See, if Jesus is king and he is a king, has a kingdom, then our response to him might be more accurately understood as allegiance, as loyalty, as faithfulness to him. Does that make sense? I, I, that, that's a disruptive idea, I think. I think it's a disruptive idea because I'm not, I'm not trying to speak ill of, he, he died just a couple of months ago. But I am trying to suggest that the word faith in lots of places and ways has simply become a concept about ideas to think or believe instead of something to which my life gets aligned by. Something by which I believe to the extent that it aligns or uh, deals with my life. You know, this whole idea of faith, I'll give it real quick to you. This idea of faith in the Reformation, there are three features that any Reformation scholar, Reformation person would say have to be present for faith to save. Remember, there's a faith the devils have. James 2, a buddy of mine came one time and said to me, he read that, it real disturbed him. He said, you know, it says, you believe or have faith. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe. He said, that's a different term, believe, than John 3, 16, isn't it? And I said, where'd you go to school? Because <laughs> he didn't go where I went. I wanted to give him a hard time. I said, it's exactly the same word. He said, you're kidding. Exactly the same word. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Same exact word as found in John 3, 16, right? So, so I mean, you know, here early in the life of the church, this idea about faith, what, what does it mean is being dealt with? Because James is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. Early on, there's, there's a big issue here. What does it mean to believe or have faith or trust or allegiance or loyalty to Jesus? It, there's a big discussion here. So you believe that God is one and you do well. By the way, you know, that, that's a, that idea when you see the word one, you hear that you believe God is one, does that ring any bells for you? When you hear the you believe that God is one, does that ring any bells from the Bible for you? Huh? What? Huh? Well, you shall love the Lord your God. But, but when they heard that idea, you believe that God is one, you do well. That's the Shema. Shema Israel Adonai Eleheinu. Every Jewish person prays that every morning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. The Lord our, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Listen, that's ground zero in Jewish theology. So you believe the right things. You believe the right things. 
You know, I, I haven't mentioned this in a while, but I think I mentioned a couple. I've been to Israel once. and, and I know. Here we go. But, you know, we flew all night, and I was writing a paper. I can't sleep on a plane, so I'm writing a paper for the president of the university. And just about the time the sun came up, through the, and you could see it through the window of the cabin, uh, all of these uh, Orthodox, and Reform, Orthodox Jews got up, got their hats out of the overhead, put their hat on, put their shawl on, or took, took their hat off, put their shawl on, and began to do this. They stood up in the plane, and I could hear them. Or you could see them. Shema Israel Adonai Eleheinu Achad. Shema Israel Eleheinu Achad. Over and over again. What are they praying? Here. Shema. Here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one. You know what that's consistent with? That would be consistent with people in the Christian faith saying, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. So you're saved. Well, that comes back to this issue about what does faith mean? If Jesus is a king and faith is more than intellectual ideas, it has to have three pieces to it, okay? Let me give them to you real quick. Number one, it has the issue of, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you the, you know, so you can, it has to have notitia, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, N-O-T-I-T-I-A, all faith begins with an idea. You know, it's a concept. It's a notion. All faith has a notion. N-O-T-I-T-I-A. Notitia. Second, faith has a census. A-S-S-E-S-U-S. I'm sorry. A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. A census. A-S-S-E-N-S-U-S. A-S-S-E-N. S-U-S, or something like that. <laughs> something like Somewhere. I told Mary Jane one time, I didn't take much Latin. I took more pig Latin than I took Latin. A census, and that means you agree. You agree. Okay? Third piece, and, and no one in theological circle like would, would ever agree that one has exercised now the faith the Bible calls for until they exercise third, fiducia, F-I-D-U-C-I-A, fiducia. Personal, individual, trust to the notion I know and the notion I agree with. Now I trust myself to that. Fiducia. Anybody ever heard of, you have fiduciary responsibilities? What? You have a trust. You know, somebody's trusting you to handle this and do something with it in a reliable way. Those three things have to be there. There, there isn't, faith isn't, I just heard about an idea. Faith isn't just the idea that I heard. Give you an example. Some years ago, I, I probably told you this. I've sometimes wondered why you people come and sound, oh, here's number story number 47. You know? <laughs> but I always want to be a Methodist because Wesley had 52 standard sermons. And I just go, number seven. <laughs> and we could go home. Because <laughs> they did the 52 over and over and over. Number seven. Oh, I love number seven. Oh, praise the Lord for number seven. And let's go home. Yeah. Um, years ago, I um, had a student, imagine that, that decided that what I was saying was something incorrect. And so I said, let's talk about it. Remember, I'm in the 24th grade, but uh, let's go ahead. <laughs> 
And uh, anyway, it was about the time in 99 when we were building this church plant out here. And uh, he was a very, uh, I think he was a very honest kid in, in some ways, I, but I think his kind of idealism had gotten a hold of him, hadn't kind of fully integrated his belief system. And so he said in the middle of class, I, I don't remember, he just said, well, I think it's a sin all the money you guys spent on that church. And I, okay, why do you think that? He said, well, I think you should have given all of that money to the poor. And I said, well, you know, we could have done that, uh, but we thought if we could gather people together over the next hundred years, you know, and bring them together and pull our resources that we could be a continuing kind of influence to the poor and to giving and stuff like that. You know, I mean, that, that's, that's another way to do it. You can do it all in one big shot, which there's a lot of research indicates that doesn't do a lot, or you can kind of work it out. He didn't satisfy him. He said, well, I still think y'all are all a bunch of hypocrites, and I think, you, I, think, I think it's a sin, and I think it's wrong. And he just kept pressing me about it. And I'm trying to be nice, sort of. <laughs> Although I told you when I get mad, I get quiet, and I get logical. And so I'm letting him talk, and I'm thinking, now, come on, settle down here a little bit. This, we've we've kind of left the area of learning now. This is just turning into an attack. So he kept just blabbering about it. And so I said, hold it. Tom, I want to ask you a question before we, before we go any further. I'd like to ask you just one little question here. Sure. Yeah. You know, everybody's looking at him like, he's taking the professor on, man, you know. Becky was in there like, go get him. No, no. <laughs> she was in a class of mine once. We won't talk about that. And uh, I said, I, I just have one question. How much of your disposable income do you give to the poor every paycheck? He did this. We're done. Next. I'm not talking to you anymore about this. What is this? Noticia? A census. Oh, I know it, and I agree with it, but I'm not doing anything about it. That is not biblical faith. And I just shut it down and said, we're moving on. See, see, that's the idea that has captured this idea in America, I think, that the idea is that it's just belief instead of allegiance. It's fiducia. It's the idea that I believe this to the extent that Jesus is a king. What does he ask of me? He asks of me that I would give him my allegiance and follow him and live for him. It seems to me to make more room for what Jesus is really talking about. Now, let me flip the, on this for a second. Allegiance. You know, I, I've been in the church long enough that, you know, I've done things before for all kinds of reasons, right? Has, has anybody ever obeyed because somebody was watching? <laughs> you do it every day when you're driving your car. Come on, you know, look up. No cops, okay? We love them. Uh, uh, but, but we've done all kinds of things. But I, I just want to ask you to consider... This, this idea, and I'm, I'm, I haven't got any questions yet, so I'm, I'm moving right along here, um, that um, this, as I'm, as I'm thinking about it, as I'm thinking about it, uh, I'm wondering if you hear that allegiance or loyalty or that kind of thing, if that just sounds like duty, right? It just sounds like duty. I gotta, I gotta be, I gotta be faithful. I, I gotta... I got to have allegiance here. Well, I want to ask you to consider uh, that this allegiance or loyalty 
could come from a couple of different places. I, I talked about this in my Bible study the other day on the guys on Friday morning, and I, I just want to want to say it again. Here, here's the difference. When I was uh, 18 uh, and uh, 19th, whenever that was, and uh, there was a thing going on in 1972 called the draft. And I remember every year uh, I watched it because it was a lottery deal. Most of y'all remember that, how they put all those ping pong balls or whatever it is. And okay, January 1, they pull it out, you know, two, <laughs> you know. And so every year I kind of watched it to see, you know, how things were going. And every year when I was not eligible, it was about, you know, I was 255, 301 one year. Well, the year I was eligible, they pulled 76 out and they were going to 100. And I remember as a young man thinking, I've pledged my allegiance to the flag all my years of school. And now there's a real possibility that I'm going to go to Vietnam with Forrest Gump. <laughs> I love that movie. I'm going to talk about it in a minute. <laughs> that I'm going to go to Vietnam. I didn't want to go. I mean, I'm straight up. I didn't want to go. I'm allergic to metal that <laughs> goes through me. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to go. And, and I remember wrestling with these ideas. I remember talking to my dad, who was a vet, which we didn't talk much about this because if we woo. But I thought, you know, if they call me up, I'll go. Because if I don't, I'm going to go to jail. And a prison. And, and I'm going to serve time for that. And I'll probably never recover from that, you know. I, I remember, though, I had some friends and some other guys that I knew that volunteered. You know, there's a difference between being drafted and being a volunteer. I'm not saying that all the guys that drafted were, like, I know some of y'all were drafted, uh, you know. I'm not saying that being drafted is a dishonorable thing. I'm simply saying that there's a bit of a difference when a person doesn't wait to get drafted. They say, take me. Take me. I want to go. You see, sometimes if we're not careful, in my opinion, even when we understand that faith means loyalty or allegiance, we, we might be obeying Jesus out of two selfish motives. Obedience can come from two different selfish motives. Two, two different selfish motives. Obe faith or allegiance, whatever you want to call it. And I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that's what Jesus is called. Jesus is not calling for people. Well, I guess if I don't go, I'll go to hell, you know. First one is, I obey to avoid punishment. That was me in the draft. I mean, I would have gone. Because the the punishment and the payment would have been too much. I had to risk it because the punishment would have been just way too much. So, so, so sometimes we obey or we're, we're loyal or we have our allegiance to Jesus because we have the selfish motive of avoiding punishment. Now, I, I, I've journaled about this in my own life. I, not long ago, I, I was writing in my journal, Lord, when, are, when am I going to grow up? How much of my allegiance or loyalty or obedience 
is selfishly motivated because of fear of punishment. What if I died? You ever, you know, when you're younger? What if I died while I was doing this? Guy asked me one time, he said, listen, do you believe that if I did this sin and then died, I'd go to hell? I said, I got another question. If you knew you were going to die, would you do that sin? Oh. (laughs) Comes back to motive. See? Comes back to motive. Why am I obey? Why am I pledging my allegiance? Why am I loyal? Is it out of fear of punishment? I want to suggest to you that that's an area you may need to dig around in. Because the fear of punishment is fundamentally about me. It's selfish. That's why, for some people, you have to just keep the pressure on all the time. Because if the pressure comes off, there's no need to obey. Or or there's a second reason. There's a second reason that's selfish. And it can be to receive reward. If I do this, it'll be better. If I do this, God will bless me. I'm not saying God doesn't bless. I'm saying if the motive is to obey because I think I'll get something, that is fundamentally selfish. Now, I'm not saying that we don't deal in gradations with this and we don't have areas of this area where we wrestle back and forth. I'm not saying this is just a done deal one day and you fix it all. If we're going to talk about Jesus as our king, if we're going to talk about Jesus as the king in the kingdom, and we're going to have allegiance to him and loyalty, why? Is it because we're afraid of him? He is the king, biggest guy on the block. Or is it because we think there'll be some reward? I want to offer another suggestion. And it's found in the book of Galatians, chapter 5. If you want to turn to your table of contents there, find the book of Galatians. It's in the New Testament. Galatians 11, it's 1108 in my Bible. Galatians chapter 5. I'm going to translate this a bit as we've been talking about. When Paul makes this statement in chapter 5, I'm going to jump in the context in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. To me, this settles the allegiance issue or begins it when he says this. Uh, for through this, uh, I would say for verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But what? What does it say there? Faith working through love. Faith working through, put the word in here we've been using, allegiance, loyalty, allegiance, loyalty, working through love. To me, that is the key of understanding. If Jesus is king, as I was working through this this week, I kept thinking, Cliff, this is just going to sound like another duty to people. Allegiance, loyalty. Okay, be loyal, be allegiant. Okay, but there are lots of reasons we can do that. Fear of punishment, promise of reward, either one of those. We don't want people living like that. We want to be able to experience, if, we, if you will, in, the, in our lives that we are living for Jesus because it's our allegiance or our loyalty that's working through love. That's our response in my judgment to our king. I think I've got that up there. No, I don't. Here it is. 
Jesus didn't say, repeat after me. <laughs> he said, follow me. Is that on there? Really? Good grief. I get to doing this in the week and get other things going, and, but it's there, see? Jesus didn't just say, repeat after me. He said, follow me. But this idea of following is the idea of faith working through love because I trust him. Stuart, love of God, I believe. Yeah, I believe that's what Paul's referring to. Love of God. Faith working through love for God and my neighbor. But you know, remember, be careful here. All of this stuff, I, I'm all, I guess I've got kind of a real high, high sensitivity to, to Christianity that's all duty-driven. I lived like that for a long time. It's all duty. It's all duty. Even love can become a duty, right? Well, you better love those people. I'm going to love you if it kills me. <laughs> it probably will. <laughs> I'm going to love you. I'm going to be so loving, you're going to be freaked out by it. <laughs> Remember this. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. This, this, this is the idea. If you love, if I love, my faith is working through love. How does that happen? Because I've been loved. You know my favorite quote from John Wesley that says this. True Christian living is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. But you cannot love God until you're convinced he loves you. You can't. Why? Because we love because what? He first loved us. You can't love God. I don't love God. I don't love other people because I'm just a good person. I don't love other people because I know it's my duty. I don't love God or other things because it's just my duty. Or It's because something's occurred to where I've experienced the love of God. Now my loyalty and my allegiance is to him. Scott McKnight makes this statement. G king Jesus summons people in a kingdom where he alone is king. And kings expect one thing from their subjects. Allegiance. Allegiance. This is one of the more strong statements, if you will, by Jesus. I have some recommended books there I want to suggest you if you're interested in this idea. But because of the way faith is used by George Michael and the way faith is used throughout our culture and the way faith is used in our experience, I want to suggest we get another word, allegiance. My faith in Jesus Christ means I am loyal and pledge my allegiance to him. And whatever he says and however he directs, by God's grace, to live my life led and directed by him. Here's an application, I think. Sometimes I think I don't have my slides here. Here we go. Is that it? What if you made one action this week as an act of allegiance to Jesus as king? What could it be? One act. Just this week when you think, you know what? Here's one act I'm doing in the coming week that is an expression of my allegiance to him. This rescues, I think, 
this notion of faith that has been in some sense um, taken away from what it means in these terms. Okay, here we go. Somebody asked this question. The word faithfulness takes the works from takes the works from us from salvation. Isn't it all about Jesus did and who he is and not about us? Good question. So the idea of legalism here, isn't it all about him? Yes and no. Jesus did everything for salvation. Jesus accomplished and did all the works for salvation. But you're not a robot. You and I are to respond to that offer. And that offer, what did Jesus say? What did he tell people about this kingdom? What was their response to that kingdom? Remember? Huh? One of them was repent. Mark 1, 14, 15. Change your mind. Metnoeo means to change the mind. And I would suggest that if there's a kingdom you got to change your mind about, it's this. Who's in charge? <laughs> who's in charge here? My mind has to change to who's in charge. The king, not Cliff, right? It's not just change my mind like I have a new, new idea in my head. It's to change my mind. Jesus said, repent and turn. The kingdom of God is here. You have to change your mind about who's in charge. And as we're saying here, who is your allegiance to? If Jesus did everything and nothing is on us, then everybody's saved. Right? If there's, no, if there's nothing on us, there's no response on our part. If he did it all, if he accomplished it all, if he did it all, and that assumes that there's nothing for us to do, then everybody's saved. Does that seem fair? I mean, not, not wrong word. Does that seem right? Does that seem right? That doesn't seem to be the message of Jesus that everybody's saved. I did all the work. I completed it, got it all done. And now there's nothing on you. Then everybody's saved. And I would suggest it's the nature of relationships. And that's what we talk about. That I have some response in this situation to receive or reject or accept or throw away? That's a good question because I'm not speaking here of legalism. I'll tell you this, our parts aren't equal, <laughs> right? There's the Jesus part of accomplishing and making salvation. And I've got my part of responding in repentance and belief and allegiance to him. They're not equal, not anywhere equal, but they're there. Or again, everybody's saved. Um, the word faithfulness takes the works from us for salvation. It's all, oh, I already read that one, didn't I? Um, uh, how do we become more convinced of God's love for us? How do, how do we become more convinced of God's love for us? Um, Martin Luther, you've heard of him, right? By the way, it's fi the 500th year of the Reformation this year. Uh, big, big things are going on in the Lutheran church, uh, all kinds of, I gotta, no, I'm not gonna say that. Here we go. <laughs> um, Martin Luther, who knew the Bible and studied it, um, was deeply affected by fear of God and the sense that he could never measure up. 
and that he was not accepted by God. And he had a couple of mentors. One of them was named Staupitz, S-T-A-U-P-I-T-Z, Staupitz. And Luther would go uh, to confession and confess everything he'd ever done. Go back to his room and wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning and go knock on Staupitz's door. I forgot something. <laughs> he was really, uh, if you ever read his life, you realize this guy was very afflicted with a sense of inability to please and measure up to God. Staupitz uh, uh, got frustrated a few times and, and it's a funny thing he said, but one, one time he said this. He said, Martin, instead of looking at your sin, look to the wounds of Christ. And that began to change Luther's thinking. That, that what I look to is the wounds of Jesus. I wrote that down in my journal some time ago, and I read that occasionally. To think about how do I, if you will, here's the, here's the question. How can I become more convinced of God's love for us? Look to the wounds of Christ. I mean, folks, this is a historical event. You can't change it. It happened. That, that, that the idea of the love of God is not a feeling that you have. It's not a sense of God's presence that you have. The love of God is an historical event you can't change. It's the cross. You, you, you need to look to the wounds of Christ. Quit, quit, quit seeking a feeling. Quit seeking a sense of God's presence. Quit seeking some kind of phenomenological kind of thing that happens to you where you feel close to God and look outside yourself to the wounds of Christ. This is funny. Uh, A.W. Tozer said it this way. I, I love this statement. Um, I probably told you before, but this idea of faith. Did you know faith is like your eye? It can see everything but itself. Think about that. Your eye cannot see itself. If you keep looking here for the love of God, the feelings that you've got, the, the nearness that you sense, the experiences you're going through, you'll never see it. Because you don't find the love of God by looking at you. The eye looks out. And the eye can see everything but itself. And when we look away to the wounds of Christ, when we look as Stalpit said to Luther, look at the wounds of Jesus. That's how. I mean, this is not a feeling. This is a fact. I, I, whoever wrote that, I mean, I, I get it. I know what you mean. I, I've wrestled in my life at times about feeling the love of God or sensing it. I don't very often. I'm just going to tell you, I just don't. And most people I know don't either. But this idea that it is historical, it's a fact, it's a reality. Look 
to the wounds of Christ. The other thing I, w- I would say is this. I would say this, turn this thing around, memorize 1 John 4, 19 that says this, we love because he first loved us. Go back to the cross and realize the reason I can love God is not something in me, not some inward capacity that I have. I don't have the capacity to love God on my own. I'm not that good. You're not that good. We're not that good. The capacity to love God is to know that you have been loved by him. Okay, I want to say it again. It's what Wesley said. You can't love God till you're convinced. How do you get convinced? Look at the wounds of Christ. You mentioned charcoal fire in verse 18. It was very significant, and we would get back to it. Perhaps I missed, but I don't remember us talking about it because I haven't. I just put that as a teaser. It's another chapter or so to kind of, you know, disturb you a little, discombobulate you. I haven't forgotten it. Oh, no. I want to get to it today, but I don't have time. Okay? Let me give one more thing real quick, and we got to get out of here. Um, what he came to do, and, and I'm just going to lay this to you here because we, I just got to, what did he come to do? In, in, in John 8, 37, in John 8, uh, 18, 37, John 18, 37, Jesus said, I'm a king for this reason I was born. I've come into the world to testify to the Truth, that definite article is important in Greek. They don't, they're not there unless they're written in. I have come to testify to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? No, the definite article's not there. He didn't say, what is the truth then, Jesus? He just says, what is truth? Wow, th- this idea of truth, you know, we're living in a crazy time I mean, I don't have time, but, but, but you know that the word for 2016 in the Oxford Dictionary was post-truth. That's the new word for 2016. We've had new words added to our lexicon. They called fake news, and whoever knows whoever that is. This idea that we live in a world where we're wondering who can know the truth. I'm telling you, I tell my students all the time, we're going to have to have a class someday to teach people how to look on the internet and know if it's a reliable site. Because, you know, a very famous person said, don't trust everything you read on the internet. I mean, Abraham Lincoln said that years ago. I mean, truth. Wow, is it in short supply. It seems to be something. And Jesus said, listen, I've come here to testify to the truth. It's, it, it, it's, it's an important matter here that, that this idea of the truth. So here's, I'm going to give you what I think Jesus is referring to here. Jesus is not, look what he says. I have come to testify. Right here, I want you to look at that word. I've come that I, I've come in to test that word testify is the Greek word martyr. Martureo. Anytime you see the word witness or 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 testify, it's the Greek word martyr. Because it suggests in the ancient world that a person doesn't just testify to the truth with their lips, but they testify to the truth with their life. They testify with the truth. With her. And Jesus said, I have come as a testimony to the truth. You're looking at him. Listen, 
when we talk about how denominations and churches are so divided and confused, part of that is because we've decided that our doctrinal list is the truth. I got news for us. The truth is a person. <laughs> you and I may disagree on a couple of doctrinal statements or positions here. I did. That's okay. Because our commitment is that the person is true. Their truth is a person. Pilate, I think, wants to ask, well, what is truth? Let me, let me think, think about this. But the Romans weren't known for philosophical excellence. They were killing machines. The Romans were pragmatic governance of the world. Most of the great philosophers came from Greece, not Rome. Because these guys are pragmatic. I wonder, is Pilate saying this? Is, is, is truth a tool that you can use? What is truth? Is it a tool? You can use it to convince your friends you're right. It's, a, it's, a, it's like a parlor game to banter around. Or is it something that I must deeply engage? I want to give you this statement before we leave because we've got to get out of here. At the heart of truth is a heart. If your commitment to truth is a list of things that you got to memorize or a set of doctrines that you're going to fight people over, we may be missing it. Jesus said, my life is a testimony to the truth. You look at me. Now, now what is that truth about? I want to give you two quick ones. The truth in my judgment as I've worked through John and tried to get some clarity, I think that Jesus' truth, he says, my life is the truth. Jesus was trying to reveal two things, God and his nature. What was this truth about? God and his nature. Go back to John 1.14, said the law and came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The truth. John 1.18, this is the one who explains the Father. Go read that. He's full of grace and truth, and he explained, the Greek word there is exegete. He explained the Father. Here it is, the truth that Jesus demonstrates in his life is what is God like? I don't know if I gave you this quote, but this. Hey, listen, whenever the Bible fights with itself, and we feel like that sometimes, don't we? You ever feel like the Bible's fighting with itself? It says this over here and then that over there. and this, Anybody but me? Hey, listen, when the Bible's fighting with itself, let Jesus be the referee. You keep going back to Jesus and saying, he's the one who, who, who is revealing God. Okay, all this other stuff, it's preliminary, but Jesus is the referee. What was he trying to reveal? What was the truth about God? Second, and I'm not trying to be cute here. They just both start with G's. He's trying to, he, he is the truth and the revelation about the gospel. And I, and I want to give you the two points real quick, and I promise I'll get you out of here. I'll give you some time next week. In John 1, 
29 to 33, John declares two things about Jesus and the gospel that we need clear. And my concern is that we've only emphasized one. Jesus said, my life is the truth here. And that's this. John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's part of the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God takes away our sin in pardon. That's important. It's critical to have a relationship with God. But he goes on and says, and this is the one whom I said would baptize you in the Holy Spirit or fire. This is the side of the gospel we've forgotten. This is the side of the gospel that is about power. Pardon, yes. Power. The Christian life isn't just try harder and do more and get more rules. It is to have the, what Jesus or what John said, was have this baptism of the Holy Spirit where is the power of the Spirit or fire. And when you read the Gospel of John, and when I read it, when I see what John said, the Gospel has both of these features deeply embedded. Do you understand the Gospel like that? That the Gospel is not only the promise of pardon, but the promise of of power through the Holy Spirit. Not our effort, not our trying harder. Jesus said, I'm the truth about God and I'm the truth about the God. Now I've distilled that quickly. There's a lot of features in there. But in my judgment, Jesus said, I'm the truth about God and the gospel. So this week, I don't have this written on your handout, but you can do this. On this week, I want to ask you to consider if you want to do this application or the other one, either one. Would you spend some time reflecting, praying, journaling, talking to somebody else about what is it about God that Jesus reveals that you need to add to your understanding of truth? What is it about God that Jesus reveals that you need to add to your understanding about the truth about God? Or... Talk to someone, journal, talk to a pastor, do something. Which of these two features in the gospel has edged the other one out? Has your understanding of the gospel as pardon reduced or eliminated your understanding of the gospel as power? Or maybe you're the other way. Maybe, you're, maybe your understanding of the gospel as power has edged out your understanding of the gospel as pardon. Those are the two huge themes of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, take these words that are from you and put them in our heart and the words that are from me, drive them out. Help us to grow in our understanding and in our likeness of you. Thank you for the fact that we are part of an unshakable kingdom. Jesus, you are our king, and you have come as the truth for our lives. Let us live in that this week. We pray it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.